It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's minor league podcast. I'm Steve Seiper, and this week it's just going to be me and Kenny. So how you doing, Ken? Good, good. How about you? I'm doing good. Uh, better than the Mets. Mets minor league system, I should say. The actual Mets are doing surprisingly Yeah, good. no, they're, they're playing well. Well, uh, the uh, minor leagues uh, are not playing well, unfortunately. Yeah, not great, Bob. <laughs> we'll jump, jump right into that. And Syracuse went 3-4 and four this week. And they're an even 500, 56 and 56 on the year, which is seven games behind the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Railriders for first. And that's actually a net game of nothing in the standings for two straight weeks now. So Binghamton went two and five, and they are 22 and 24 in the second half, which is five and a half games behind the Redden Fighting Phils for first. That's a tongue twister. Redden, Redding Fighting Phils for first in the Eastern League Eastern Division. St. Lucie Mets, they went 4-2, and two, and they had a game just outright canceled because of rain. And that puts them at 28-16 and 16 in the second half, which is three and a half games behind the Charlotte Stone Crabs, who first in the Florida State League South. And that is another net gain of zero as compared <laughs> to last week. The Columbia Fireflies went 1-4 and four with a rain postponement, and they are currently 16-25 and 25 in the second half which is seven and a half games behind the Augusta Green Jackets for first in the South Atlantic League Southern Division. 
Brooklyn Cyclones went two and five this week, and they are now 26 and 21, which is one and a half games behind the Aberdeen Ironbirds and the Hudson Valley Renegades for first in the New York Penn League McNamara Division. The Kingsport Mets went three and three, and they are now 20 and 23 on the year, which is five games behind the Johnson Sydney Cardinals for first place in the Appalachian League West. And last but not least are the GCL Mets, and they are currently 18 and 13 on the year. So our hitter of the week for the week, 75, 400, 542 this week with a double and a homer. So a little bit of background information about him. He was born in Banau, which is a city in the central interior of the Dominican Republic. And he was signed at the beginning of the 2016 to 2017 IFA period. Um, he was given the largest bonus that the Mets gave out on a single player that year. He was signed for $300,000. And he wasn't considered like a top player in his signing class, but he was a late bloomer. And that might be the reason why he wasn't really given too much consideration for that. Um, he had a big growth spurt a couple of months before he was signed. And he went from kind of a scrawny kid to a, a, a kid that's about, you know, 6'2", 175 pounds, and is athletic, wide-shouldered, and suggested that, you know, he could grow in and fill in, out a little bit more. So he didn't play professionally that year. He finally suited up in 2017, and he hit 267, 338, 433 in 64 games for the Dominican Summer League Mets. And then at the end of the year, he was promoted to um, the GCL Mets and got into a handful of games. Then the next year, 2018, he spent the entire season with the GCL Mets, and he hit a, a solid 267, 329, 367 in 46 games. And he's currently 19, and he was promoted to Kingsport this year. And through 35 games, he's hitting 278, 336, 397. So at the plate, he is. Not the best. Um, he's still pretty young. He only has three years of professional experience, so his swing is a bit raw. His eye is still developing, and that does lead to some really bad at-bats. He'll lunge. He'll miss. Um, he'll miss against you know premium velocity, uncommonly good breaking balls. He'll swing with too much downward plane through the zone. But when everything is working, when everything is in sync, he can put up pretty good bats, as evidenced by his batting average, which is behind only Francisco Alvarez, Yolander Sayas, and Kenny Taylor on Kingsport, and is 33rd in the entire Appalachian League. But when you narrow it down, he's actually fourth among players that are 19 or younger, so that's not too bad. But regardless of the bat, uh, he's always been a kind of more defensive-oriented player. Uh, he spent all of his career at either second or shortstop, with most of it coming at short. And he doesn't have, like, a quick, explosive first move, first step, but he does have good tools for everything else that a shortstop needs. He has good instincts. He ranges well enough. Smooth hands, a slick glove, an above-average arm. So there's a pretty good chance that he'll stick at shortstop. Um, basically the only thing that would knock him off is if another player on the team is a better shortstop than he is. And Spino really has not had uh, to deal with that so far. He's a better shortstop than Jalen Palmer and Gregory Guerrero, his teammates right now. So he's getting, you know, playing time over them. 
and he's a level behind Yoel Romero, Wilmer Reyes, and Brandon Freiman, who are currently on the Cyclones. So there's no reason to think that he's going to be moved off of short unless they kind of skip him and push him a bit next year, which is a possibility if he does hit decent enough for the rest of the season. So you are excited about uh, Sebastian Espino? Um, as excited as you can be for, um, you know, a player in the Appy. Um, you know, certainly a pretty good week. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd put him in intriguing, if not necessarily excited. Uh, yeah, I'm intrigued that's, that's by That's a better him. word, yeah. Yeah. So. I think he's a guy that, assuming that his career progresses at the rate that it's been going, that he does climb up the minor league ladder and produces similar numbers that he'll be a guy that there's a lot of kind of big differences in opinion because a lot of the value is derived from his defense. So like he might, you know, he's never going to be a power hitter. He's never going to put up those big numbers. Maybe he'll be a decent hitter for average, but he's a guy that the casual person will look at the numbers and say, I don't get why he's, you know, an honorable mention or on the back of the list or whatever the case may be. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it's kind of similar to Jimenez. I mean, Jimenez is obviously a much better hitter, was a much better hitter than uh, Espino is right now. But a lot of his value is tied to his defense. But we'll see. Hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully Espino is part of the new, new, new uh, young crop of players in the system. Yeah, he's definitely made a bit of a name for himself. So, uh, you know, a 7.33 in the OPS and the Appy is nothing to sneeze out, sneeze at. So, yep, he is until until something changes. He's definitely a follow, but yep, maybe not uh, an exciting follow. All right, well, for our pitcher of the week now, he is a name that people should be much more familiar with, and that is Drew Gagneau. He started two games this week. He went 14 innings combined, allowing two runs on 12 hits, walking two, and striking out 19. And one of those games was a 13-strikeout effort, which was a uh, career high for him. So, little background about him. He was drafted by the Pirates, originally out of high school, but he turned them down, and he went to Cal State Long Beach. And he was okay in his freshman year, and by the time he was a sophomore, he became their Friday night starter. And then he was drafted by the Brewers in 2011, and he, you know, slowly progressed up their minor league ladder. A little interesting tidbit is that um, the the Mets were interested in Gagneau in 2011, and they actually intended on drafting him with their third-round pick. But the Brewers picked immediately before the Mets, and they picked (laughs) Gagneau. So the Mets went with Logan Verrett instead. Um, but for the next couple of years, he slowly but surely climbed up the Brewers' minor league ladder. And That's actually was, kind of funny that they, yeah. they chose a pitcher exactly like Drew Gagneau, <laughs> the pick after him. I was sure it was probably one of those situations where they're just like, oh, sh- oh crap. Like Next, next guy on the list. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But... He climbed up the minor league ladder slowly in Milwaukee. I'm sure if the Mets picked him, he would have been doing the exact same thing. Uh, the numbers were generally unremarkable pedestrian. 
And in 2016, him and Martin Maldonado were traded to Los Angeles in exchange for uh, Jed Bandy, who is a catcher in their system. And Genyo just spent one year there before electing to become a minor league free agent. And it wasn't a particularly good one. Uh, he missed most of August and September because of a right quad strain. And he ended up posting a 6.25 ERA in 86.1 innings with Salt Lake Bees, allowing 95 hits, walking 39, and striking out 83. That December, he signed with the Mets as a minor league free agent. He initially was assigned to Binghamton, but he just pitched there for a single game, and then he was promoted to Las Vegas. And he was... I guess you could say he's one of their more dependable pitchers. I mean, this is, you know, the PCL, the 51s were not known for particularly good pitching staffs. But from 17 starts in mid-April to early July, he posted a 6-6, excuse me, a 4-67 ERA, which is not bad. And um, basically during the AAA All-Star break, he was going to, spend those couple of days that he had off with his fiance going to the Grand Canyon doing touristy things but he had to put those plans on hold because the Mets called him up and so finally at the age of 28 he made his major league debut he didn't pitch too well um, against the Phillies he gave up six runs in 4.2 innings but he did finally make it and he got another taste of the major leagues in September he was a bit more successful. He pitched 7.1 innings out of relief against the Phillies, Boston, Nationals, and the, and the Marlins. And he posted a 1-2-3 ERA, winning a pair of ball games. And, uh, you know, he's, like last year, he started this season in AAA, uh, in the minor leagues, but he has spent time with the majors. Um, he got his first call up this season, starting a game against the Phillies in mid-April. He wasn't particularly good. And then from late April until mid-June, he was pitching out of the bullpen. And again, he wasn't particularly good. But in the 63 innings that he's pitched for the Syracuse Mets, he has a 2.43 ERA. So he's a kind of, I guess you would call him a quad-A player. And the reason why is just he just doesn't have overpowering stuff. His fastball kind of, it can top out at 95, but it's mainly 91 to 93. And he complements it with a changeup that's okay. It's it's his main out pitch, and a slider that's not as good. And um, you know he gives up a lot of home runs. Uh, last year he gave up 23, which is a lot. So you know when you're not overpowering and you need to um, be very nitpicky with your control, and you're not, you get burned easily. And he's a guy that. In the PCL last year, was getting burnt easily, and then in the couple of times that he's gotten MLB cups of coffee, he's gotten, you know, hurt. And it just, you know, it's a good story. We on on this podcast, we always appreciate a good story. Guys, kind of defying the odds, making it, getting the MLB money, which is sorely needed. But it's just hard to see uh, Ganyo having, you know, too much of a major league career doing a lot more than he has already. Yep. All right. Well, that is <laughs> Drew Gagno, our pitcher of the week. And uh, well, we'll go to break a little early because we have a lot to talk about this week. So we'll be right back after this. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. 
So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. This is from Complex to Queens. I'm Steve. I'm joined by Ken. And this week is going to be a depressing week. Um, because that's what Mets fans need. More depressing <laughs> discussion. Uh, a few weeks ago, Lucas had Sean Ratliff as his, oh yeah, that guy. And it got me thinking about all of the guys in like the last 10 years or so that the Mets have had that basically retired due to injuries. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about like the life cycle of minor leaguers, you know, getting drafted, living the daily grind, hopefully making it. But the unfortunate part is that most guys don't make it. And it's one thing if a player doesn't make it because he just doesn't have good stuff. You know, he can't hit the curve or one of like the million of other things that causes guys to flame out. But it's another thing when a guy's forced to retire because of injury. You know, that's just something that's just out of their control. Uh, there's nothing you can do to really fix it. You know, you, you can learn to recognize spin with enough reps and at-bats and looks at live pitching, but you can't make your vision better when you get hit in the head with an errant ball and it screws up your vision, you know? You could change your mechanics to give you better control, but you can't stop your shoulder from, you know, getting inflamed and barking every time you pitch because something in your shoulders is messed up and the pain just isn't ever going away. So... There are, you know, there have been a bunch of guys that have come back significantly worse than they were before uh, because of an injury and then eventually got released because of it and just kind of faded away. But I'm going to gloss over those guys because there's a lot of them in, you know, in, in the annals of, of minor league baseball history. And just really going to focus on the guys that have actually, you know, retired. Um, voluntary retirement it's, you know, very final, even though it actually isn't as we'll discuss in a little bit. But, you know, when you get cup by team and, and you don't get picked up, your status is kind of, you know, you're just kind of floating around in the ether. Um, there's no finality. There's no closure. It's just very open-ended. But when you put in the paperwork and retire, it's like, boom, you're done. Book closed. The dream's over. So I just want to look at those guys. And... In the late 2000s, the farm system had a lot of guys that retired because of injuries. And, you know, he wasn't a particularly good drafter, Omar. He did waste a few, more than a few picks. But part of the reason that the system didn't really pan out and bear too much fruit during that period is because a lot of guys had injury problems and retired. Um, the first guy I want to talk about is Nate Vineyard. He was drafted in the first round of the 2007 draft. He was the 47th overall pick. 
and the second first round pick that the Mets had that year after they drafted Eddie Kuntz at 42. He was a prep lefty from Georgia. He bat an average fastball and a pretty good slider, which is why he was drafted as high as he was. And he wasn't that great in his debut year, but, you know, you don't really care too much about numbers with players that are that young and so low on the minor league ladder, so whatever. And then in twenty in 2008, he only made two appearances um, before undergoing left shoulder rotator cuff surgery. Now, here's where it kind of gets weird, and... Part of what makes it weirder is that we still don't actually know the complete truth here. But basically, after shoulder surgery, Nate Vineyard went MIA. He didn't go to his rehab in St. Lucie. He didn't do the team-mandated rehab that was closer to his house in Georgia. He never showed up to instructional leagues that fall. All the phone numbers that the team had for him were disconnected, and he just literally was off the grid to the point that they had to send people down to his actual house to find him and find out like what the hell is going on. So we don't actually have the full story, but, you know, Vineyard basically retired from baseball and either didn't want to do all the rehabbing or he retired because he had to do all that rehabbing and, you know, whatever the case was. But he is uh, he is and has been done with baseball. Their second round pick in 2007, Brent Rustich, he also retired early because of injuries. He was a little unusual in that he was a college senior that never really performed that well at UCLA, but the stuff was solid, and he got drafted really early, and he shot up the prospect rankings. Um, on most lists at the time, he was between, like, 5 and 10. He had a, a pretty good mid-90s fastball, pretty good slider, developing changeup, but had some control problems because his um, mechanics were pretty herky-jerky. And injuries limited his time on the mound, he missed the entire 2011 season because of a nerve issue that was basically making his fingers go numb. And he retired after that, understandably, because nerve issues are kind of a scary thing. So I don't blame him one bit for that. Yeah, once the, the feeling in an area starts to go, that's a pretty good indication that, you know, you should probably... Stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do what you're once, doing. Once nerve problems start happening, they, they tend not to, you know, unhappen. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, our next guy up is Reese Havens, and he was drafted in the first round of the 2008 draft, the 22nd player overall, and the second pick that the Mets had after Ike Davis was picked at 18. And he really looked like he was going to be a special player, but he was just never really able to stay healthy for too long. Uh, over the course of his couple of years in the system, he had elbow problems, groin problems, back problems, oblique problems. And then in 2010, he had uh, surgery, to co- to surgery to correct his slipping rib syndrome, which is a pretty rare condition where the cartilage at the bottom of the ribs is too mobile and it causes pain in the back and the abdomen. And his production on the field is basically up and down, depending on how he is feeling in relation to all those injuries. And finally, in 2014, he hung up the cleats for good, retiring from baseball. Um, but before all those injuries piled up, he was regarded basically as the Mets' second baseman of the future. And on, you know, most of the prospect lists at the end of the 2000s, he was ranked anywhere between, you know, 5 and 10 in that range. So his, you know, retirement, his injuries and subsequent retirement were a pretty big blow to the system. Next up is Sean Ratliff. He was also drafted in 2008 in the fourth round. 
Lucas covered him a few weeks ago, so I won't go into too much detail. Um, he was never as highly tattered as Reese Havens, though. He did make, you know, the, the back end of our, um, of our top 25 list in 2011, but that was about it. So after all of those kind of big names all dropped out, um, in the early 2010s, the decade, the Mets had a few guys retire because of injury, but nobody really as high profile. Um, in 2010, the Mets drafted Brian Harrison, who was a pitcher at a Fulman University in the 13th round. And he dra- he retired in 2013 after a bunch of injuries basically made him doubt whether or not he'd be able to ever perform over the course of an entire season. In 2011, the Mets drafted Tred- Chad Zercher. He was a middle fielder out of the University of Memphis in the 31st round. And he basically battled injuries since the moment he got drafted and... He retired in 2013 after all those injuries started affecting him, you know, in, in non-baseball situations. And he realized that continuing his career could result in more injuries and impact him, you know, even more in his day-to-day life. In that same draft, uh, the Mets drafted Tyson Seng, who was a pitcher out of the University of Oklahoma in the 33rd round. And he retired in 2012 because of elbow and shoulder injuries and, again, not wanting to have to eke out a living in the minors with compromised body parts that could, you know, go at any time again. So that was the end of him. In 2013, the Mets drafted Jared King. He was an outfielder out of Kansas State University, and they picked him in the fifth round. And in his four-year career, he only played a full season twice, and he hung up his cleats because of injuries. In 2017, the Mets drafted Jack Schneider out of Davies County High School in Owensboro, Kentucky. He was a pretty raw prep kid, but he had big-time speed, a really good arm. He used to pitch, and he could touch as high as 96. And he got into two games that year, and he actually only played one of them, because the day after his debut, the day after his first game, he got hit in the pitch with the, he got hit in the face with a pitch, and he did not appear in another game ever since, and he retired at the end of the year. And that was the end of yeah, Jack that'll, Schneider. That'll do it. Yeah, and again, I don't blame him. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Andrew Church, who was the Mets' second-round pick in 2013, he's an interesting case. Um, he was kind of a reach to be drafted in the second round, but the Mets popped him there anyway, and he proceeded to put up not particularly good numbers thanks to a lot of injuries sapping the stuff. And he retired in May 2018. He was promoted to Las Vegas in what seemed like a pretty weird promotion. He pitched a single game for them, and then he retired. It turns out that the Mets did him a solid because he's from the Las Vegas area. So they promoted him to the 51 so that he could pitch in front of his hometown crowd at least once before retiring. But even though he voluntarily retired, retirement is not paperwork. It is not permanent, and he put in the paperwork to come back. And this past June, he he came back. He unretired, and he resumed playing. Now, he's only gotten into five games this year, um, one for Syracuse and four for Binghamton. And he's been on the disabled list for Binghamton since the beginning of July, so maybe he jumped the gun a little bit in his comeback attempt. But it shows that for all this kind of negative stuff that we're talking about all these you know sad stories there is a flip side and guys can get better and 
you know, if, if they're confident enough and think that they are ready to come back, they can, you know, even though the door is closed, it's not completely locked, you know? Yep. All right. So now I just want to go into a little detail about a couple of guys that for whatever reason, you know, either me or Ken, we feel more personally connected to them for whatever reason. So would you like to just kind of talk about a guy? Uh, yeah. Um, I guess we'll start with Rob Whalen. Um, so Rob Whalen, let me pull up BREF, <clears throat> was drafted by the Mets in the 12th round of the 2012 draft, um, out of Haines City High School in Florida. And, um, the Mets pretty much immediately sent him to, uh, the complex where he threw about an inning and then in his, in his first year post draft, uh, and then sent him to, I believe the Appy League to start the 2013 season. Uh, and he threw 72.1 innings and posted a 1.87 ERA, um, you know, in rookie ball. He went back to rookie ball for the 2014 season, but eventually pitched his way to, uh, the then low A affiliate, the Savannah Sandnats. And uh, on the season in 2014, he made 12 starts uh, through 62, 69.2 innings and, again, posted an ERA under two of uh, 1.94. Um, so, Waylon, the next season, um, <clears throat> uh, was ended up being traded, I believe, was that the first of the, the two Kelly Johnson trades? Yeah. Yeah, so he was included um with John Gant in the first of the two Kelly Johnson trades um in twenty fifteen. So the Mets got back Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe and sent John Gant and Rob Whalen to Atlanta. And uh both Gant and Whalen would end up making the big leagues. Um I yeah, um and Whalen <clears throat> ended up making his big league debut in twenty sixteen for the Braves. Um, he made five starts that season, um, throwing 24.2 innings and, uh, posting an ERA of 6.57. So not great. And, um, really around then is when we started to hear rumblings of, um, him dealing with, uh, depression and anxiety, really serious depression and anxiety, which kind of put his career in, in jeopardy. He's somebody who, um, Basically had to step away from baseball a few times uh, due to his mental health. Um, and then eventually ended up making, finding his way to the Mariners organization. And um, in 2017 for the Mariners, he threw 7.1 innings with the big league team and posted a 6.14 ERA. Um, and in 2018, he threw four innings. And posted, actually posted a zero ERA in those four innings, but oh, again, yeah, he started having like serious anxiety issues. And, uh, Hannah Kaiser from Yahoo Sports wrote a piece that uh, I found a few interesting quotes from, uh, about Waylon and from Waylon. Uh, the first one was that he apparently, uh, was seeing a therapist throughout the season and, um, ultimately decided not to take anti-anxiety medication to sort of work on his problems. Uh, pretty much so, or largely because of MLB's restrictions on prescription drugs 
and um, their stinginess in giving exemptions. Uh, I just thought that was interesting that, like, you know, it's not only, like, um, steroids or stimulants and stuff that the drug, you know, policy could, you know, factor in to the decision Mm -hmm. to medicate, but also, you know, legitimate, (laughs) like, uh, health cause concerns, you know? Yeah. Being blocked by that. Uh, I thought that was, you know, what were you saying? You you hear every so often, you know, well, not every so often, but usually, I guess, the guys are always claiming when they get popped for some kind of steroid or, or some kind of banned substance test that they, you know, didn't know what it was or they have a prescription for it or whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. Usually we take them at, you know, we don't give the guys the benefit of the doubt, but in a lot of cases, they are guys that have the proper prescriptions and everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember um uh Raul Mondesi Jr. or Adalberto Mondesi. Mm-hmm. He got popped for um I think like prescription Ritalin. Yeah, that's a big one. And was literally just like, Yeah, no, this happened. It's prescribed by a doctor completely legally. We didn't get the paperwork in <laughs> and then just served his suspension and like eventually got the, the therape- therapeutic use exemption. Um but yeah, um, I thought Waylon was an interesting case because again, it wasn't like a physical thing, but you know, he was dealing with enough, um, anxiety and, um, really wasn't in a head, you know, was never able to get himself into a headspace to be able to, to perform at an elite level, mm-hmm. you know? Um, he retired. I should probably have this open, but, um, recently, I think before the 2019 season, yeah, February 25th, 2019. And, um, yeah, no real word on what he's been doing since, but. Well, um, I wouldn't say that I'm sure because I have no clue, but hopefully not having to deal with those kind of stressful situations, he's feeling better now. Yeah. And um, and, you know, he, he made the big leagues regardless. Yeah. So, I mean, he'll always have that. Mm-hmm. And we kind of always, maybe more so, I guess, the, how to put it, the, the advanced stats, sabermetric kind of crowd, mm-hmm. kind of discount a lot the kind of mental aspect of the game. You yeah. Know, there's no such thing as clutch, and these are athletes that are used to performing at a high level, yep. and, you know, they don't, you know, rising to the cage is not a thing, whatever, but... At you know, at the end of the day, these are people, and yeah, you may be able to. I, yeah, like at the end of the day, you know, they're people who you know need a certain amount of focus of, of you know high level focus to be able to do what they you know do. Um, you know, and that that's hard to do when you're you know severely depressed or mm-hmm. anxious in the way that Waylon appeared to be anxious. You know. Yeah, and um, if you're if you're a guy that. I know I'm not familiar with his, you know, career, his upbringing, career, whatever, off the top of my head. But if you're a guy that has basically done nothing but succeed from little league up through becoming a professional, and then all of a sudden you're getting smacked around, like that's a huge shock, and that can definitely bring on confidence issues and and you know mental crisis. Yeah. Um. And then there was another quote 
from that same uh, Yahoo Sports piece that I, I wanted to read. Um, according to Waylon, uh, McKay, meaning Adam McKay, um, sports psychologist for the uh, the Mariners or mental skills coach, I, I forget his exact title these days, but uh, McKay offered him a week a week off to deal with his anxiety, but after just a few days. Waylon received a text message from McKay explaining that he would be replaced on the roster if he didn't return to the team immediately. Um, which again is, you know, telling of, you know, a player how, not really, yeah. <laughs> how it's thought of, yeah. So, uh, just want to say, you know, that's kind of also an injury, although not necessarily a, a physical one. Yeah, so. I mean, mental health has been something that's always kind of gotten ignored, and at least in public, um, you know, not not really necessarily policy, but at least in the public's mind, that is stuff that has been given a lot more uh, attention and everything the last couple of years. Right. And if anybody out there is listening, you know, go see a counselor, go see a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever it is, because... You know, it can really help. Yeah, if you have problems, those people are, in some cases, doctors, but at at the very least, they're licensed to uh, help you. And, you know, if you need help, go get help. There's no, nothing wrong with admitting that you need help with whatever it is in your life anymore. We've we've come a long ways. Yep. All right, well, uh, one guy I want to talk about uh, is Chris Vile, who... I've always been a fan of. I know you were also a fan of him. Yeah. Uh, he was drafted in 2016 at a Stanford uh, in the sixth round. When he was with the Cardinals, he went back and forth between starting and relief. And in his three years there, he posted a 480 ERA in 98 innings, allowing 96 hits, walking 78, and striking out 68. So that's not exactly an impressive resume. Definitely not numbers you'd think a guy getting in the in the sixth round should have, but the stuff was pretty good. Um, his fastball sat in the mid 90s. It could even touch triple digits in relief appearances, and then his curve was a good pitch. His his changeup was decent, and he basically you know he had a, a suitable repertoire for starting or pitching out of the bullpen. But obviously, as evidenced by having more walks than strikeouts in his uh, college career, control was a big issue. Yep. And, you know, it got a little bit better when he became a professional, but it, he still walked a ton of guys. And he dealt with a bunch of problems, um, injury problems, in 2018. He went to the DL a few times because of a strained shoulder, ulnar pain flare-ups. And at the end of the year, he was diagnosed with snapping tricep syndrome, which is an uncommon problem that causes elbow pain when the tricep stretches or, or um, you know, compresses and it brushes up against the ulnar nerve. So luckily for him, it wasn't really a debilitating thing. It was something that, you know, could be worked around with stretching and exercise regimens. But when he came back and was pitching this season, he just really wasn't the same guy. Um, I saw him in Columbia this year, and the fastball was sitting 90 to 93, topping out at like 93. Whereas when I saw him last year, it was 94 to 97, topping out at 98. So, I mean, his fastball was his bread and butter, his main weapon. And without that, he was really a shell of himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he retired this June. Um, 
after posting a 9.55 ERA in 19 relief appearances. He's being used completely out of the bullpen. So that's, uh, you know, he was one of the guys, one of the few guys that we discussed a couple of weeks ago that had a big fastball. But that uh, snapping tricep syndrome was unfortunately stopping it from becoming, you know, stopping his big fastball from being big. And a guy with commands problems because of, you know, his mechanics and just his size and everything with an okay fastball and then two decent secondary things, it's not going to play. And, you know, even as low as Columbia, low A ball, they were hitting him around. So another, uh, yeah. He also kind of is is uh, the type of player that the Mets like really really love like um really like tall, the tall pitchers. Yeah. <laughs> they draft like three of them in every draft where they're like six seven and above uh, guys who like it's it's like a big if if they'll ever be able to you know repeat their delivery well enough but you know no unfortunately he wasn't able to nope. I I don't know why. I just always I guess, you know. Yeah, I've always liked him. Yeah, I I like I, even though I know that more often than not the tall pitchers don't really work out. It's just fun seeing a guy drafted with like, you know, 67, 68, Yeah, six, nine. like power forward size, you know. Right, you just have these giant guys. If they have big fastballs, that's an even bigger plus and, you know, half the time due to the profile, they don't have any clue where they're going. That's just a fun, I don't know what, what it is about it. It's yep. like the Ricky Vaughn kind of, you just no clue where it's going, but it's a big fastball, it's going somewhere. And the batter doesn't know what to swing, doesn't know what to duck. But we wish him uh, all the best. Yep. I'm sure that he'll finish out his Stanford degree, and that's a pretty good thing to have. It'll serve you well in life. So he should not have any problems in the future going forward. All right, we'll be back after this break, and we'll discuss a couple more guys whose seasons, unfortunately, whose careers, unfortunately, did not uh, pan out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everybody. This is Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's Model League podcast. And we're going to keep the depression train going. And talk about some more players whose careers were uh, who, whose careers ended prematurely because of things out of at injuries or similar situations out of their control. Um, we just discussed Rob Whalen and Chris Vile. Um, two more guys we'll talk about. 
Uh, would you like to go first, Ken? Uh, sure. Um, so for my, my last dude is probably the most depressing of them all, and that's uh, Brian Cole, who was an outfielder in the Mets system from 1998 to 2000. Um, the Mets drafted Cole... Uh, Let's see. In the 36th round, or no, in the 18th round of the 1998 draft, uh, out of Meridian High School in Meridian, Mississippi. And, um, actually they drafted him out of Navarro College in Corsicana, Texas, not a Meridian High School. He was originally drafted by the Tigers, uh, out of high school. My bad. Um, and Cole, sort of became like this this sort of legend, you know, years after his his playing career um because a lot of like big name big leaguers uh like one of one of which being Albert Pujols, uh CC Sabathia also raved about his ability mm-hmm. um who played against him as like young young prospects said he was one of the best players they'd ever seen. Um so really young, really precocious um and uh the Mets drafted him in the 18th round of the 1998 draft. So they assigned him to Kingsport to start, and he, you know, didn't exactly tear the cover off the ball, but was pretty damn good for, you know, a 19-year-old just starting out in pro ball, hitting 300, 317, 491 in 241 plate appearances across 56 games, and got into two games for um, Pittsfield, who at the time was the Mets' uh, New York Penn League affiliate, and um, just two games at the end of the season. And they promoted him to the Sally League in 1999, where really sort of like the legend of Brian Cole began. He hit 316, 362, 522. Oof. Yeah, uh, 884 OPS um, across... 545 plate appearances over 125 games for the Capital City. Sorry, we're like so far before <laughs> my prospect, the Capital City Bombers. Yeah, um, that I, I don't know what any of the affiliate names are. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he, you know, was one of the Mets, you know, really, really highly touted prospects. Um, everybody mentions him as, you know, the third guy in the trio of Wright and Reyes and Cole. So, you know, sort of the, of that same core. Uh, to start the 2000 season, the Mets sent him to St. Lucie, and he just continued to crush the ball, hitting 312, 356, 528, almost, you know, exactly what he hit the year before. And uh, as, you know, a, one of the younger players in the league, he was about almost two years young, uh, below the league average for uh, the Florida State League. And got promoted to Binghamton halfway through the 2000 season and hit, um, you know, slightly less spectacular, but also at a very young age. He was a full three years younger than the league average. Hit an unspectacular, but still very good, 278, 326, 420. And, uh, in 196 plate appearances across 46 games down the stretch. And, um, really was one of the, the better prospects in the system, really shot up lists as the result of, his breakout 2000 campaign. Uh, and two quotes that I wanted to share from um, a great Sports Illustrated article from a couple years ago um, called The Best Player You Never Saw by Michael McKnight. Uh, <clears throat> one of his friends, uh, Pat Strange, who was uh, a Mets pitching prospect at the time, 
said, I remember telling him to hit the ball on the ground and use his speed, and I believe his response was, shut the fuck up and worry about throwing strikes. <laughs> Which <laughs> I think is just amazing. <laughs> um, and just something to sort of like speak to his, his sort of ability. I believe it was Josh Hamilton playing against him, but I'm not sure. Fantastic radio. Uh, no, Mark Hamilton, who was uh, played against him in A-ball, said, The scout didn't see the home run he hit off of me. That same game, I threw a slider that slipped out of my hand, and Brian jumped. His feet actually left the ground, and he hit it out to right center. It looked like a dang pitch out, and he hit it 450 the other way. Oh. Not bad. Yeah, the kind of like precociousness that you think of when you think of, you know, a crazy, crazy good hitter <laughs> at young ages. So the story takes a tragic turn um, when he's leaving spring training after the, the 2001 season um, and is trying to head home to, to Mississippi for a few days. And he gets into a car accident and dies. Uh, because the, the car rolled over a few times. It was like a known safety thing with, uh, the type of, I, th- I think it was a Ford Explorer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a big, big tragedy that, you know, this young kid with everything against, everything going forward, going for him ended up, you know, passing away just as he was kind of breaking out. And, you know, becoming somebody who, you know, the sky was the limit for. Yeah, it's, it's you know. One, one of the sadder stories in Mets history. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, he, he was 20, 20, 21, you know, still had the entire. Yeah, I think 22. 22, all right. But he still had, you know, his entire life in front entire of him. Entire life, you know. And, and uh, it, it, it's, you know. It's selfish, I guess, but at the same time, you know, we we view all these guys from a baseball prism, and you know, with all of that, then you can't help yourself but saying, like, what could have been, what kind of career could have he had with such good stuff, good numbers, good everything. Yep, um, right. I, I will say that uh, his family was awarded, um, I think, like a hundred thirty million dollars uh, in the lawsuit. That they, you know, sued Ford for, um, like future earnings lost. Mm-hmm. So that kind of tells you how highly considered he was in, in baseball spheres that they were able to, like, pin his future earnings that high despite having only played a double A for, you know, a couple of weeks. And that's the case when we always think about, like, Scott Casimir and, you know, Brian Bannister, guys that were kind of traded possibly a little too prematurely and then had solid careers in like the mid to late 2000s you know when the Mets really needed just a couple of more wins multiple times to kind of go on imagine a riot raise Cole core in 2005 in 2006 yeah seven eight you know uh, another one of those you know what if situations where who knows what you know, would have happened? If he was on a different highway at a different time. Yeah. Uh, 
can I share one more quote from the, that uh, really good article that I'm, again, I'm going to recommend people read. It's uh, yep. the best player you never saw by Michael McKnight from uh, sports illustrated originally published April 1st, uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is Albert Pujols who said, uh, have you seen him play? You'd think, uh, man, this is just a little guy. And then you were amazed by his power, driving the ball into both gaps and then standing on third like it was nothing. So one of the best players to ever play the game. Yeah, you never saw. Yep. Well, tragedy is uh, very sad. Tragedy is tragic. Yeah. Well, the guy that I'm going to discuss now—it's unfortunate, but is nowhere nowhere near as terrible as Coles. And yeah, he's still alive. (laughs) Yeah. Still alive, is still in uh, good physical condition. And that's Cameron Plank, who was drafted in the 11th round of the 2016 draft out of Rowan County High School in Moorhead, Kentucky. And he established himself as one of the top prep pitchers in Kentucky, and the Mets liked him. And they wanted to work out a pre-draft deal with him, but he didn't want to play with – well, I shouldn't say he didn't want to play with the Mets. He didn't want to bargain with the Mets. Um Basically, the Mets offered him the equivalent of like third round money, which was anywhere from like five hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars. That they saved said, from uh, signing Anthony Kay under yeah, spot. Yep. Yep. That's what would come, where it would come from. But they were going to offer him that. He said that it would take more than that to get him to opt out of his commitment to the University of Louisville. So the Mets drafted him anyway, and then yep, Anthony Kay's medicals came back showing UCL damage, so they were able to sign him under slot. And then shift those savings to signing Plank. So in the end, they were able to sign him for one million and one dollar. Um, I, given the symbolic extra dollar, I'm guessing that Plank said he wouldn't sign beneath a million dollars. I don't know for sure, but you know that that one single dollar does stick out a lot. And with his combination of stuff, you know, he was worth breaking the bank for. I guess uh, he was a little old for a prep pitcher. He was 19, but he had a good physical build for a pitcher. He was 6'3", 220 pounds. His fastball sat in the low 90s. It could get as high as 95 or so. And then he complemented with a solid slider and a solid changeup. Um, his control wasn't the best. Uh, his delivery had a lot of flailing arms and legs, but that also gave him a little deception. So it was just one of those things that they live with and work on and hopefully improve. But he just never really got the chance. Um he didn't pitch at all after being drafted because the Mets wanted to manage his innings workload, which is a common thing. So the next June, during extended spring training, he was, um, you know, exercising, pitching, and simulated games, and he started feeling shoulder pain. And it was discovered that he tore his interior capsule in his shoulder. So he was shut down and then had shoulder surgery to repair it. So his debut season basically ended before it even started. Months rehab go by, and he's finally able to make his major league debut. August, excuse me, July 2nd, 2018. Uh, he took the mound in the fifth inning for the GCL Mets. He recorded two outs, walking a batter and striking out a batter, and then he was taken out of the game. The Mets gave him plenty of rest, and then basically a month later, on August 3rd, he started another game for the GCL Mets. He recorded just one out before being lifted, and unfortunately reports... Uh, started circulating not that long after that his shoulder was hurting too much and that he really couldn't continue pitching. Tests, MRIs, everything showed that there was no new damage in his shoulder, 
So basically they, again, shut him down, gave him plenty of time to rest and, you know, come back for 2019. A few weeks ago on July 13th, he made his debut, um, this time with the Kingsport Mets. He faced three batters. He needed only 12 pitches to get out of the inning. Everything looked good. All in all, it looked like a success. But unfortunately, it would be the last time that he pitched. Um, we don't know exactly why he retired just yet. The news is still pretty recent, about two weeks old or so. But presumably, it was because of his shoulder. And, you know, just a 21-year-old kid, there's a lot of life left to live. And it's just worth being overly cautious about, you know, your body because you could tear something, yeah. rip something, whatever, and it just doesn't get better. And you have to live with that yeah, for the next decades. Basically only able to use one arm, you know, mm-hmm. especially shoulders are so tricky. There's so yep. many, so many parts to it that all need to fit together perfectly, you know? Mm-hmm. And then something by the shoulder, it could also affect the back. It could affect yep. the neck, you know, all sorts other... of like cascade effects. And... Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate that he's, He's done with baseball, but at the sake of his his health, you can't blame him. And hopefully he's, you know, as the as Church demonstrated, you never know. Guys can come back. Things can get better. But if it doesn't, at least hopefully he has his, he has his draft signing money. He has his health and his whole life ahead of him. So, all right. Well, that brings us to, oh, yeah, that guy where we take a look back and remember some uh, minor leaguers from yesteryear that we might have forgotten about. Um, would you like to go first, or should I? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, right. So m- this week, my oh yeah, that guy is uh, Champ Stort, uh, an outfielder, who on this date in 2016, on August 4th, 2016, went one for four and hit the game-tying home run in a game that uh, Binghamton would later win. Uh, against the Harrisburg Senators. So, you know. Uh, Sport, <coughs> Stuart was born in Free, in Freeport, Bahamas and, uh, moved to North Carolina in high school and, uh, played at the Christ School in Asheville, North Carolina before going to Brevard College in nearby Brevard, North Carolina, um, out of which the Mets drafted him in the sixth round of the 2013 draft. And, uh, the profile was intriguing, I'd say. He, um, compi- combined, like, elite speed, uh, with an extremely raw offensive game, but at the end of the day was an extremely gifted athlete, um, who the Mets hoped would develop enough offensively to let his gifts play, you know, in-game. So, they sent him to Kingsport to start his pro career in the 2013 season, and, um, he hit pretty well. He hit 240, 388, 353, which is about 20% or so above league average in 188 plate appearances. And um, more sort of impressively, I guess, for a player who was always going to need to use his legs a lot to, you know, make the most of his career, he stole 11 out of 13 bases in the Appy League, which was uh, an 84% success rate. Uh, the Mets promoted him to Savannah for 2014, and he hit an almost exactly league average 256, 341, 340 in 330 plate appearances and stole 29 bases out of 33 attempts, which is 87% uh, success rate. 
And uh, that's when he sort of started to become like a an intriguing prospect to watch. Would you say that say so around yeah. his uh, full yeah. season ball? I mean, it's hard when any time a player performs during like you know it, with GCL Mets or Kingsport or Brooklyn, you kind of have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. Yep. But once they hit full season ball and they're able to do stuff against guys that are starting now to throw decent off speed stuff or decent have decent fastballs over a full you know three forty four game season, then all right, now let's start. Uh, these guys might be legit. Yeah, and like the bar for him to hit is, was never going to be very high, given you know his speed and the ability he had in the, in, on on defense. So, league average in the Sally League is is pretty good. Um, and also for, Savannah was like a pitching haven. Oh so. yeah, it was the worst place to hit. Um, that was the year that uh, that was where uh, Becerra, Wilmer Becerra, got on everybody's radar because he posted a, a pretty good line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so back to champ stored, I guess. Um, he was promoted to St. Lucie for the first time in 2015 and really didn't adjust well at all. He hit 176, 271, 242 in 382 plate appearances, which was almost 40% below league average. He did steal 21 bases out of 24 attempts, but that's, you know, pretty rough offensive production from, you know, anyone who's not like a pitcher or a catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent him back to St. Lucie to start 2016, and things went a lot better. He hit 265, 347, 407 in 315 plate appearances. That's a 122 WRC plus, and stole 25 bases out of 28 attempts before being promoted to Binghamton in early July, where again, you know, his struggles sort of continued at a, a sort of higher level of competition. He, down the stretch for Binghamton in July, after July of 2016, he hit 201, 264, 261 in 203 plate appearances, which was um, a pretty rough 47 WRC plus, but did steal 15 out of 18 attempts. That's sort of like the story of, of Champ Stewart. When he gets on base, you know, he can turn he a single. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't stay on first base when he gets there. Um, and it was, you know, has always had a very high success rate when stealing bases. So he picks his spots, he picked his spots well. Um, and his speed really did play in games when he put it in a position to play in games. Um, so the Mets sent him to the Arizona Fall League following the season. And Stewart actually, you know, really, really performed there. Um, he hit 300, 329, 400. In 74 plate appearances for the Scottsdale Scorpions and stole 12, 12 bases out of 13 attempts. That's 92% success rate. And, um, whenever I mention the, the AFL, I like to, um, look at who else was on the team. And boy, are there, there's some good names. Uh, so that was the year they sent, uh, Cheech, Tim Tebow, uh, Matt Oberste, Marcus Molina, Corey Oswalt, David Roseboom, and uh, Corey Taylor. Also, future Mets farmhand uh, Austin Bessart, who was just acquired for Jason Vargas, was on the team. Uh, Scott Kingery was there. Dylan Tate was there. Chris Stratton was there. And Miguel Andujar, Greg Bird, and Glaber Torres were all on that team. Wow, that was... Yeah. So pretty wild roster, right? <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so fall, he was he was sent back to Binghamton for the 2017 season, and he really didn't build off of his success at all. He hit 222, 310, 331 
in 372 plate appearances and stole 35 bases out of 41 attempts and um, went back to Binghamton in 2018 and, you know, performed arguably worse, hitting 136, 280, 264, and 134 plate appearances and stealing 11 out of 13 bags. And the Mets released Stewart after the 2018 season, and he hasn't played anywhere since, as far as I can tell. So when the Mets drafted Stewart, they hoped he would develop enough offensively uh, for his, you know, elite speed to to play in games, but that never really happened. He never really got rid of uh, the swing and miss or got the swing and miss to a point where it was playable. He stuck out in uh, 37.3% of his plate appearances, um, didn't walk enough to offset a, a K rate that high. Um, but he did steal um, 147 bases out of 170 career minor league attempts. So, not bad. Yep. Ultimately, you can't steal the the cliche as the cliche goes. You can't steal first base. You know, proved to be true. So, Champ Stewart, we wish you well. Hope you get another opportunity somewhere. But yeah. Yeah, he was a guy that I was just a little surprised that they released because. It's not like there was really I, anybody else. Yeah, and I, I always figured that he would at least get a call up to, you know, sort of run off the bench uh, when rosters expanded at some point. But mm-hmm. I, I guess you'd have to put him on the 40 for that. And uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess it's selling that no one else has since picked him up because, you know, other teams obviously do their scouting. And yep. if no one else sees anything particularly useful in him and – He's been unsigned since then. I guess you know there's there's not much there. Yep. <laughs> well, for my guy this week, I went with Michael Katz, who for the week um, July 25th to August 2nd in 2015 for the Savannah Sanats, hit 324, 361, 735. We had two doubles and four home runs, and it was four straight home runs in four straight games. A um, little background about him. He was born in a very affluent suburb outside of Washington, D.C., Falls Church. Um, his dad played baseball at George Washington University, and his mom played basketball at UNC Charlotte. So he grew up, obviously, in a very competitive, athletic-oriented family and gravitated towards sports himself. He went to Bishop O'Connell High School, which is a Catholic school in the area, and he played football, basketball, baseball, lettered multiple times in all those sports, he got named to like all area, all conference, state, all that stuff, honorary teams. And he ended up hitting 545 with nine homers in his senior year. So after he graduated, he went to the College of William and Mary. And he hit a cumulative 346, 424, 569 with 29 homers over three seasons there. In his uh, senior, uh, excuse me, his junior year, which was 2014, he had his best season. He hit 363, 445, 646 with 14 homers. He won a CAA Player of the Year. He was named to various honorary teams, blah, blah, blah. And he was named a semifinalist for the Golden Spikes Award. Um, he eventually lost out to A.J. Reed, though. So the Mets drafted him with a ninth-round pick. He was the 265th guy selected overall. And he signed for only $100,000, which is $49,000 under slot. Half bad for a college guy going to Brooklyn, you know, after the college season ended. 
But he hurt his knee at the end of the season, and that injury kind of extended until the beginning of 2015. So he missed about a couple. He missed two months uh, at the beginning of the 2014, excuse me, 2015 season. And then when he got back on the field, he spent a couple of days in Brooklyn and then was promoted to Savannah. And he hit 239, 312, 395 in 56 games. And that was with the 347 bat bip. So, you know, coming off of injury and at historic Grayson Stadium, which is very much Pitcher Park, maybe you could hand wave away some of the struggles. But in 2016, um, he basically put up the same kind of numbers at St. Lucie. He hit 219, 289, 283 in 92 games. And he did that with a very healthy 324 bat So at the end of the year, the Mets released him, and he's been out of organized baseball ever since. But he did go back to William & Mary, and he got his uh, degree, so that's good. And he uh, he currently works at Geico, uh, their corporate office, and he's a marketing guy. So, uh, you know, he lost a lot of developmental time because of that injury. But it really was just a case of the tools that made him very highly regarded as a college guy not manifesting themselves as a professional. Um, you know, it's not like a situation like we talked about earlier where injuries basically stymied and ended a guy's career. Um, his swing, you know, his bat, his bat speed was kind of average at best. You know, a lot of his power is just from his just pure physicality. So he had trouble catching up to premium velocity because his swing is a little long. And, you know, if coaches shortened his swing, it would have been at the expense of some of his power. So it was like a catch-22. Um, making things worse is the fact that he was a big guy with a below-average arm, below-average speed. So he was pretty much pigeonholed at first. So, you know, he's having trouble making contact. You could shorten the swing a little bit, but it takes away some of his power. Then you have a first baseman with not a lot of power. If you just let him be, which is what the case was, you know, he just kind of is going to run himself out of baseball. And that's pretty much what happened. And that was what ended his career. So that is the tale of Michael Katz. Yep. Oh, any uh, last words this week? Luckily, the trade deadline is coming gone, so we're not going to get cabbaged again like we got last. Yeah, year. that's good. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Francisco Alvarez has another two hits today. Ah, oh, very good. Yep. Every week I look, I'm just like, is this week going to be the week where he's going to be a player of the week and Kenny's going to be able to go go off? But yep. Uh, yeah, currently hitting 364 with an OPS of 940, and he's the youngest player in the Appy. So. Yeah, I mean, it's... That's looking real good. <laughs> Who knows if he can catch. Catches develop weird, but obviously you'd rather see a guy doing well than not yeah, doing good, well. Good performance beats mm-hmm. bad performance, but who knows. Well, hopefully next week will be the week that he's the <laughs> player of the week. It's been a couple of times where he's either been narrowly edged out or he'll have, like, good performance on a weekend where some of those days count towards the prior week and then yep. the next couple of days are in... It also doesn't help that um, he's been playing sporadically. There's like two, him, Ostadio, and uh, Regnault are in like mm-hmm. a timeshare. Uh, so he's oh. only he's only playing like three days a week. We only have a couple more weeks to go, so we'll see. Hopefully, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, concerns, whatever, you can send us an email at our email address, which is from complex2queens at gmail.com. You could follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. Um, I am at Steve Seipa, and Ken is at, at KenLevin91. 
subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from, rate and review them, and thank you everybody for listening. And we'll be back next week with a recap of yet another week of Mets minor league season. Until then, love the Mets, love the Mets. <laughs>